On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about what happens now with the urban boundary expansion restriction. If you can't build out, you got to figure it out some other way because we're expecting 260,000 or 230,000 new people in this city in the next 30 years or so. Do we build up? Do you pack them in a little more? What do you do? Well, we're going to talk about that one. And Chuck Dollenbach. Tuba player, long time, original tuba player for the Canadian Brass joins us prior to them having a concert in town here, well, in this area in Burlington, coming up this Friday. We'll talk to him. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. The province has said that Hamilton is going to see an additional two, this is their prediction, an additional 236,000 people living here by the year 2051. And by the province's figures, that's going to require an additional 110,000 housing units, give or take. So when council voted last week to hold the urban boundary, which a lot of people supported that view, um, what it essentially decided was we're not going to be expanding outwards anymore. Well, that leaves only two other options. Well, one of them is more intense buildings, packing it in a little more. And the other is building upwards, which would help with that. What do we have to do to make that happen? I want to bring in Ward 8 Councillor John Paul Danko, who joins us now. Councillor, thanks for the time today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Scott. So I'm looking at, and look, I, 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 you spoke very passionately and very eloquently about the urban boundary expansion, and there were clearly a lot of people in the city who agreed with you and supported the things you and 12 other councillors were saying. This does become a new challenge, though, about where we put all those new people. And again, your points and your arguments about why we don't want to expand out, uh, they resonated. But where do we put 236,000 new people in this city? Well, 236,000 people, and as you said, 110,000 new housing units. Um, so I think that is the challenge that's going to be facing us now. And it's, it's not that different than the challenge we would have been facing if we would have expanded by that 1,300 hectares. We would have still seen very significant intensification either way. Um, but what we're, we're planning on now is how to accommodate all that within the urban boundary. And I, I think there are some really clear opportunities for us as a city for good quality infill development. And I want to stress that it's it's the quality of the development that we're looking at, looking for, not necessarily the quantity. And I think that's something that perhaps has been missing in Hamilton in the past. So what, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by the quality as opposed to the quantity? Well, the quality of, of development that we've seen in, in historically in Hamilton is traditionally one bedroom or bachelor uh, apartment buildings or condos. And that's not the kind of infill that we want to rely on to meet this housing need. We want to look for ways that we can develop um, more ground-based development that's more familiar to that single-family home uh, type development that, that we're used to seeing. Um, so just a, a couple of examples for infill opportunities. There's, there's quite a few areas in Hamilton, in the area that I represent on the South Mountain in Ward 8, um, of existing designated greenfields that have not been developed yet. So these are currently just open open land farm fields that have been planned, but not yet developed. And right now we're only planning for a fairly low density in those areas, 60 people and persons per, uh, per hectare. Um, but some simple upzoning of those areas could easily increase those kinds of densities in areas that are already planned. 
One example would be at the corner of, um, of Garth and Rymel. There's a, a subdivision that's going in there that's already been approved for single-family homes. And uh, I worked uh, with staff and the developer earlier in my term to upzone that for a new stacked townhome development that's nearly double the density that was initially planned for. And it's a really unique development with all the parking underground, so it, it leaves lots of green space and open space um, for housing and for people to enjoy. But it's just a different way of looking at how we develop mm. some of those areas that are already within the boundary. And those are certainly options and ways to do some of it. Um, to get 110,000 new units, uh, I don't. I think we're going to have to have, though, um, a lot more upbuilding. And, you know, because, I mean, even if you have a bunch of 100-unit buildings, we need 1,100 100-unit buildings in the city to reach that number. I mean, it's a staggering thing. So I went back and started looking because, I, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this. And it seems, and, you know, it's not every case, but very often in this city, whenever a developer proposes a, a condo, a tall condo or a tall tower of some kind, neighbors start screaming because it's going to block the sun or it's going to make the area too busy or it's going to block the view or whatever. That's going to have to be part of the future, though, now, isn't it? Not necessarily. Again, I think it's the quality that we're looking for here. So when neighbors are, are opposed to a development in their neighborhoods, it's because that they don't see it enhancing their neighborhood. They see it as, as taking away. And I think we have to change that perception by really focusing in on high-quality development. Um, for example, again, you know, Hamilton is and the province and the federal government are investing more than $3 billion in LRT. And it's those areas on the rapid transit corridor where we're really looking for that high-density, high-rise development. Now, having said that, again, we want to focus on family-friendly development. That's two- and three-bedroom apartments, not just bachelors and singles. And then, again, this, this kind of builds on a lot of the planning that we're already doing for infill development. Um, I'll use uh, Upper James as, as an example in an area that I represent in Ward 8. It's already zoned most of the Upper James corridor, which is currently um, you know, really underutilized as, as strip malls and uh, low-density development. It's already rezoned for um, mixed-use commercial and multi-residential up to eight stories. So there's significant opportunities for us to build that kind of higher density, um, multi-residential towers, but also the more gentle um, mid-density. And, and the key is, again, it's the quality of development and how we can fit that into existing neighborhoods without taking away from those neighborhoods. Uh, I, I wish we had a lot more time. Um Many developers, and I heard one this week, and I can't remember where, if it was on this station or somewhere else, said, we're interested in doing the things that we're talking about, but often in Hamilton, it's very difficult to get things through City Hall and to get these kind of things done. Do you agree with that? And, and, and whether you do or not, do we, if the developers feel like it's difficult to make this happen and we need all these units, do we have to do something, even if it's perception, to make it seem easier? Well, I've, I've certainly heard that feedback from developers as well. And it, it can be frustrating when you're proposing something, again, where the immediate reaction is, no, I don't like it, I don't want it, and the residents come out against it. And again, I, I'm going to go back to, you know, the quality of the development. If that was a proposed development that residents saw that fit, that was really environmentally friendly, say it was maybe built to a passive house standard or a net zero 
um, and took into account local architecture and the local feel and, and look of neighborhoods, you wouldn't see that same kind of resistance. So just the fact that we do need infill doesn't necessarily mean that we need to rubber stamp infill. We want to still be selective. We still want to be careful about what gets built where and give residents that opportunity to participate in the process at the same time recognizing that there are policy changes that we will have to make in secondary plans, inclusive zoning, so to be able to build duplexes and triplexes within neighborhoods that are currently only allowed for single-family homes. So there's definitely policy changes that we need to make, but it doesn't have to be just a rubber stamp. Is most of this, and we do have to run, but is most of this in your imagination and other councillors' imagination, is most of this going to be along the LRT route so that places up on the mountain and out in Stony Creek and in Dundas and other places, this is not really going to be all that impactful? I think LRT route obviously is where we start, but we also have the other routes of the BLAST network, which is going to be built out over the next 30 years um, for rapid transit. And a lot, kind of spreading out from there and into neighborhoods and having that gentle middle density is what we need to do as a city. That is uh, Ward 8 Councillor John Paul Danko. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me on. It is, uh, it is, believe me, it is a topic that we are going to be talking about uh, for years now because, because as I said, and I, I stand by this, I don't think I'm wrong. Whenever there is a tall building, now, you know, what the councillor just said, and I, I think he's correct, is that not all buildings that we're going to be talking about are going to be 20 stories, 25 stories. For sure, there's going to be other modes, other types of infill and in, in construction that happens to get these 230,000 people a place to live. But anytime, it seems, we throw out the idea of building a giant new high-rise People go crazy in the city. You can go back and look at it. There's, there's been a story right now on Stony Creek on the lake. There's a three tower project that is trying to be built. The developers are trying to build it and they keep having to lower it and lower it and change this and change that. Um, it's going to be really interesting over the next number of years to see how we accommodate all these people that we now have to accommodate in the space we have it and yet deal with the people who don't want this now in their backyard, even some of them who were very much against expanding the boundary. Now, I think those same people are going to be in some cases, not all, but in some of those people are in some cases are going to be saying, okay, so does this mean I have to accept something in my neighborhood because I didn't want the expansion? I may believe strongly that we should not have had expansion. I may believe morally and ethically that was the right decision, but does this mean then I have to accept something to a to compensate for that or accommodate that. We, we will be seeing that. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. A few years ago, I was at a sports celebrity dinner here in Hamilton and I bumped into my next guest. Uh, he, of course, would not remember this. I certainly do, though, because um, I was at a head table full of all these sports folks and yet I was more excited to chat with him than all of them, mostly because he has been at the top of his game longer than any of them have. For 50 plus years now, he has been the tuba player for the acclaimed Canadian Brass who are in Burlington on Friday at the Burlington Performing Arts Centre for a Christmas concert uh, live and you can watch it by streaming. We'll tell you how to do that in a moment. But his name is Chuck Dollenbach and he, I'm thrilled he joins me now. Chuck, how are you tonight? I'm really, really good. Thank you. 
Excellent. I, you know what? I read somewhere just earlier today that you are the most recorded tuba player in history. I, I don't know if that, that's got to be a point of pride. It's a, it's a strange one, but it's a point of pride. Well, I might've made that up. Who knows? That's the sort of thing you're not, you know, how, how do you know? I you just take credit. I'm sure it must be true. It must be true. Have you ever missed a performance, though, of the Canadian Brass when you've been well, on I stage? Well, I haven't. Uh, it's been an absolute uh, unblemished uh, in, uh, attendance in every event. And uh, I don't know why, but uh, it just worked out really nicely. You're like the Cal Ripken of Brass. There you go. Well, I've been called yeah. that, actually. That's in fact, Have you? In Hamilton. Uh, yes, indeed. In Hamilton, I've been the, uh, the equation. But... I think maybe I'm outlasting that, you know, unlike sports guys, you know, we can go forever. So we're lucky. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I assume that COVID has for a while there, you were off the road, you couldn't do anything. And and so after that many years, 49, 50, <laughs> well now 50 years, was it, a, was it a good break to have just to get away for a little bit, even though no one wanted the COVID thing? Well, I thought it was on purpose. I thought somebody planned that just as a, a kind of a <laughs> gift for our 50th anniversary, like, 50th anniversary, take a year off. It was amazing. Do you, Chuck, do you still play every single day? I mean, whether you're performing or not, do you play the tuba every single day? Um, in the event my colleagues are listening, yes, every <laughs> single day. I don't miss a day. I practice, man, I practice. Um, um, in the event they're not listening, uh, well, not really. <laughs> I would think you don't have to now after that much time although you know i'm certainly not someone who can speak to that but surely after this much time you can take a day or two off and you don't lose anything well that's pretty true but there is an element of always finding something new something you think you've you've done so much that you're never going to find something new and of course there it is and i think there again um and you brought up the sports dinner we stay really close to things that are happen in sports because in a competitive uh sport arena uh, sports people are always looking for the what, what's what's the thing that's going to make us a little bit better? How are we going to achieve a little bit more? How can we go a little further? And uh, we've kind of adopted that. How can we find more in a piece of music that we, we thought we knew top to bottom? And then we say, but wait, how about this? And it's, that's what always keeps it exciting and fresh. Well, when we came into this segment, uh, I don't know if people picked up on it, rush, but what yeah. we were playing was the Rush 2112 yeah. Overture that you guys did. I, I would not in a thousand years have guessed <laughs> at the Canadian Brass covering a Rush song. Well, it went like this. All of these artists on the album that we covered, <clears throat> Rush being one, like, we, you know, Getty was constantly, we we're on Young Street, we we're having coffees, and we always saw each other. All of these people, Katie Lang, Joni Mitchell, uh, Dead Mouse. They've been begging us to work with them, and we just haven't had the time. So we thought, as a, to honor them, we could at least maybe cover their their important songs. So that that was our intention. <laughs> it, it it is though. It is you know you've done this. You've got this new album out called Canadiana, which is covers of Canadian artists and some of their yes. their interesting and great songs. And again, like I, I would have loved to have been in the meeting to sit around <laughs> and, ha and listen to you guys decide what songs we're going to do because these are not what I think a lot of people would have thought a brass quintet would come up with. Well, the one that I find particularly illuminating is the uh, dead mouse, because everybody would assume that we're going to have an electronic, uh, something that we don't understand and it's all over the map and so forth. And it's actually one of the most straightforward, really beautiful tonal. I mean, this, this can go right into a classical playlist. It's, it's just amazing. And I think there's, 
so much talent in all of these artists that we covered and you start to to draw that out and it's 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 really enlightening for us as well the more we 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 dug in uh bruce colburn uh was kind enough and uh, we were just honored as can be he actually went in the studio and uh sang he's on one of the the tunes and to have an artist of that nature to come and collaborate with us it just created a whole new different sound yeah, but it's hardly like you guys are the no-names who are calling up Bruce Coburn. I mean, Bruce, Bruce <laughs> Coburn knows who the Canadian brass are. It's not like you're calling out of the blue. He said, wait, wait, uh, uh, brass, brass, uh, <laughs> is that a trumpet? What is it? <laughs> yeah. What what is What would you say? I mean, look, you, you've been doing this, as I say, 1970, I think you guys started. Yeah, so you've been at this correct. now 51 years, yeah. uh, whether it's Dead Mouse or Rush. What's the strangest piece that you've ever covered or that you've ever done? <laughs> is there one? Well, I think maybe uh, Lady Gaga is what started all of this. We did uh, we did the Lady Gaga piece, and uh, that was really obtuse. But that gave us <laughs> the idea that we could cover uh, pop songs. And pop is kind of a funny word. Just the, the artists and the songs that are in people, it's sort of in the domain. And this is actually the very first uh, recording where we played entirely one end to the other Canadian music. So this was for us, you know, kind of a thrill to be able to stretch out and do this. I I read somewhere that you are credited, Canadian Brass, not just you, but you are the Canadian (laughs) Brass. uh, Canadian (laughs) Brass is credited with having 600 songs in your canon. Um, How many of those today Mm -hmm. could you still play that you would remember? Or is there a like a limited number that on any given day that we've rehearsed that I could do, or if I said song 392, right. <laughs> you could pull that up and at least make a passing go at it. I think probably just about everything was something that we spent enough time that it, you know, might even take a little while to really get back to it. But there's a real fine point that you, you don't just take something and, Oh yeah, I remember this. Let's play it now. Let's go. You're still bringing it back to that level. I, I think, you know, like Michael Jordan, if he came out with a basketball, he's going to spend an awful lot of time getting back. Sure, it would be wonderful, probably better than most people. But for him, he knows that there's so much more, and he'd really be striving for that. So I think mm. even taking out, you know, one of our pieces that maybe were recorded way back in the 70s, we'd bring it back, and we'd really want to find, again, find what it is, what's the secret. And, uh, you know, Glenn Gould was a good example of this, a famous Canadian artist who took – he got famous playing Goldberg variations and at the beginning of his career and at the end of his career, he redid it and they are so different. It's just fascinating, both wonderful, but totally different. I don't know if this is something you like to admit, especially right before you're (laughs) going to do a concert here, but is there a piece that you've done so many times now that you would be totally fine never playing again? (laughs) That's interesting. Maybe those already aren't being played. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) You've already dropped them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Uh, yeah, I think you do find some things just feel right at a certain time, and and you probably wouldn't necessarily revisit it. But there are also standards. Um, When when we started, there was no brass music. There was nothing that you'd say. You know, like orchestras have 300 years of repertoire and string quartets, the same thing. But we're more like a pop group in the sense that we had mm. to create our own repertoire. 
And that meant, uh, you know, really finding music that was appropriate at the time. And then sometimes you move on and you say, well, this is even better and this is even better. So in that sense, um, yeah, I think I'd, I'd, I'd stick with my first answer. I think probably those things aren't getting played already. <laughs> You say you're, I mean, you're a pop group, and, and it's, I think it's a valid thing to say, um, even though it is classical, but who who now? Because again, 51 years, you've covered, I mean, that's a long time. Who's your audience now? Is it is it is it the people who started then, or do you have a brand new young audience? I mean, certainly a member of, many of your members are younger. I mean, who right, is your exactly. audience? Exactly. Uh, someone said to us, and, and we took it as a compliment rather than an insult, but somebody said to us that, they felt that we had a sitcom audience, meaning we could have a grandfather with a grandchild at our concert. And I think that's always been the case. We're we're finding now very often after a concert, somebody will come up and say, oh, my, my grandfather took me to the first concert and I heard you guys and it was amazing. And uh, so we have that kind of continuity. And then the young guys in the group, the whole intention for me was, to uh, lower the average age. So we only go by average age. And that brings in a, a, you know, a young audience, young players, particularly that want to come and hear these amazing players. Well, Chuck, I mean, listen, I'm going to just tell you the same story then that you just told, (laughs) because the first time I ever saw you play was when I was a young teenager and my grandmother took me to see you at Roy Thompson Hall. And, and you know what, it's, it's, it's a wonderful memory and, and it's a, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing about music that you can hear you guys and it flashes you back to that memory that you have. Nice. That's, that's very warm. Nice. Nice. And I think that was the idea, you know, you don't know when you start out, you're, you're climbing a very small hill and then you see a little larger one in the front, the real cliche, cliche idea. But sure enough, the idea that we have an audience that is stuck with us. Um, mm. We just played in Florida. We started our tour this fall we were just down in florida and of course a lot of people gravitate towards florida and we hear a lot of people say i heard you in 1978 and i saw you mm. at Carnegie hall in 70 you know it's really fun it's, it's amazing to be still in touch with that audience but then have this uh the youth you know a young audience all the time and your start we only have a few minutes left here but your start mm-hmm. when you talk about going back am i correct that I mean, Hamilton is really a, an important part of the start of the Canadian brass. Well, it's not only an important part of the start; it's also a very important part to this day. We have a lot of tentacles uh, uh, in the Hamilton scene, so um, yeah, very much so. It gave us our home base. There was a; it was called the Hamilton Plan. It was actually famous all through North America. Hamilton Plan was the idea that. Um, every school child in a 60-mile radius, this was before kilometers, a 60-mile radius would hear a a string group, a woodwind group, a percussion group, a brass group, and we were kind of the spearhead of this. This was started by the uh, Pakin family and uh, Webster, Betty Webster, uh, started this whole idea, and it it really took off, and it was copied in in several uh, U.S. cities, and we were kind of the the tip of the wedge. We were the ones to go in and and do the school shows and get everybody excited about it. So that gave us a home base to start. We didn't have to do five different jobs and then get together at midnight to to rehearse. We were together every day. And we like to say, we think we're the only musicians in the world that thought we could find our way to Carnegie Hall by playing children's concerts. And sure, that's (laughs) a (laughs) word. 
Well, am I correct also that you, that it was here? And maybe it was you said Betty Webster. Was it her who gave you your name or, or altered the name to be Canadian Brass? Well, somebody somewhere along the line in uh, Montreal had had done it. I don't know, maybe one concert or something. But CBC seemed to have something written down that said Canadian Brass Quintet, I think it was, or Ensemble. And uh, so we were talking to Betty. We said, well, this is a problem. What are we going to do? She said, oh, just drop the last name. So we became Canadian Brass. And then everybody, as you might expect, you know, over the years, everybody followed suit. And uh, the Brass uh, concept that we created, there's now thousands of Brass groups, and they all just and that Canadian note it's no longer do people call them a quintet or an ensemble so it's just mm. something brass <laughs> uh, I, I got one I, I think you have Brandon standing there and I want to grab him in just a second but um uh, one really weird question that uh, uh, this probably just speaks to my lack of knowledge more than anything else, but <laughs> you're the only tuba player I've ever seen. And maybe there's lots more out there who <laughs> plays a black tuba. What's with the black tuba? Oh, carbon fiber. Now, some people have accused me of using carbon fiber because they think I'm, I'm getting tired and I don't, I, I, I wanted to take the weight off of the instrument and that's not <laughs> it at all. It's, it's a very uh, resonant material. Uh, we got the idea from the speaker industry uh, way back when carbon fiber was just getting uh, rediscovered. Uh, it would go into low-cost speakers because it responded so quickly. You could get a lot of bang for the buck. And I thought, well, that's kind of what, what we're looking for in instruments. So the experiment uh, developed. And uh, now, yeah, I'm known for playing this uh, carbon fiber instruments. So why do the other guys not play it as well? Why do they not go carbon fiber? Well, you know... Uh, again, I hope they're not listening, but I don't pay them well enough for them to buy <laughs> carbon fiber. <laughs> no, it hasn't really been a, it hasn't been really adapted, and and uh, there's a certain sound that people get in their in their head, and they just want that sound. And for me, I was looking for a little bit of that kind of change, but it's coming around. A lot of string instruments now are made out of carbon fiber, and um, it's it's becoming kind of popular, I guess. That's very cool. Uh, Chuck, did you say that Brandon was standing right next to you there? Brandon is standing right here, and he's he, he's eager to tell you uh, anything you'd like to know about. See, I couldn't tell you about the music because I didn't do the arrangements. He did everything. <laughs> so here's Brandon. That is Chuck Dollenbach. Chuck, really appreciate the time. Thank you for this tonight. This is Brandon speaking now. Hey, How's it Brandon, going? It's Scott. How are you tonight? Hi, Scott. I'm, a, I'm doing all right. How are you? Excellent. I really appreciate you taking a minute or two on here because, uh, we as you know, we were just talking to Chuck. We're talking, by the way, to Brandon from the Canadian Brass. And, you know, I'm reading your bio, and am I? is it right that you joined the Canadian Brass when you were 20? Yeah, let me do the math real quick. Yeah, 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 that's, it's still 20. That, that's, that's right. That's, okay, I mean, again, I don't know that there's a real answer for this, but how do you get to be good enough on the trumpet at 20 to join the Canadian Brass? I just had to be good enough to fool them into accepting ah. me. Um, so uh, I had only learned, uh, you know, a handful of notes and how to play them in the appropriately uh, <laughs> arranged order. And uh, fortunately, they only asked for those exact notes in that particular arrangement that I knew. Uh, so well, it all worked that, out, and gradually, I, you know, I learned a few more phrases since then. Well, that and, was very fortunate. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it really was. It was. I was. Um, I was still just a student when I met them out in California at a music festival that they were teaching at, and I was busy being a student. And um, yeah, we got to 
play. Uh, the students there got to play along with Canadian Brass in rehearsals and in a concert. And that's sort of how it all started for me. And um, yeah, within uh, within a year, I found myself um, sort of, I guess, auditioning for the group and then touring with the group. Maybe a silly question, but you're out in California. Did you know of them? Did you know who they were? Did you know their reputation and everything? Oh, definitely. Yes. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to go to that festival out in uh, Santa Barbara. It's called the Music Academy of the West. And um, yeah, the Canadian Brass was, was the main draw for me in choosing to go there. And so when you get to play with them a little bit, even at 20 and even clearly pretty darn outstanding at 20 are there nerves playing with them that first time or was it pretty you know hey this is no problem yeah there was definitely a heightened sense of self-awareness and uh, <laughs> i i can't say that i was uh 100 comfortable it's such a distant memory now uh i think mm-hmm. that the uh the nerves that i might have felt then were more uh, more excitement and uh eagerness because i knew that it was a uh, it was the sort of group that I that I wanted to play with and uh, wanted to, uh, you know, work with somehow. And um, and then it, well, fortunately, it all worked out. I did get to play with them beyond that, <laughs> just that one experience. Brandon, anyone who's seen the Canadian Brass play um, knows that you don't play with music stands and sheet music in front of you. You've got to learn everything you're playing and when you jump into a group that's been established as long as they have and have this huge repertoire of music uh, again uh, not being a proficient musician uh, i once upon a time played a trumpet and cows would respond and and show up at my door um mm-hmm. how do you learn that much music all at once to be able to then go on tour and play it that's a good question uh well when the group i guess when the group is first learning music, we're at least all on the same page and literally reading from pages of music together. But you're right. Uh, I did have a lot of catching up to do. There's a, at that point, 40, no, 30 something, maybe 35 years of music that they had under their belts. And, um, I, I definitely had a lot of catching up to do. I rehearsed, uh, with the other trumpet player at the time quite a bit and uh, just practiced along with recordings on my own um, and just did the best I could to just know a lot of their classics, the the things that they would call to be, you know, played for memory or encores and and whatnot. So uh, I did have to do my homework, but there was a lot of uh, in the moment scrambling when something would be Mm. called or programmed. And I found that I didn't know it. I would just have to, Learn it really quickly. <laughs> um, that is, but, uh, um, yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. That sort of changed uh, over over time because uh, I found that the best way to get around that was for me to just write new music for the group to play, and then we could all be <laughs> <laughs> on the same page. Or if anything, I would have an advantage because I wrote it. Well, so let me ask it. you that. We have we have a minute left here, Brandon, and yeah. I understand that you did all the arranging for this last album. How do you take? And we were we came in. I don't know if you heard it because Chuck had the phone by his ear, but we came in playing the twenty one twelve overture from Rush. How does a brass quintet take a Rush? piece a rush song but with rush i guess it's more of a piece and turn it into something that you can play and make it not sound ridiculous quite honestly <laughs> well we just play it faster really that's the trick we, we turn up the <laughs> tempo and um, that's it, eh? uh, we put the rush in rush and uh of course we still had to have a, a stellar uh 
drum set player and guitarist, uh, Sean Kelly and Tim Timlick. Without them, uh, you know, it really, it really put an extra bit of sparkle and energy into that arrangement. Um, but uh, it's uh, this, this particular piece by Rush is uh, I found that actually really lended itself to brass nicely because uh, we, if people know brass instruments, then they know that brass instruments are capable of achieving an edge to their sound. So we try to go there on the edge of excitement with uh, the mm-hmm. Rush 2112 Overture. It is, uh, it is all uh, amazing. I am a fan, and I, I appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, Brandon and Chuck and all the rest of them will be at the Burlington Performing Arts Center on Friday, 8 p.m. Uh, Burlington, P-A-C, Burlington Performing Arts Center .ca is the website. You can also stream it. You can buy a ticket to tune in by live stream if you want to see it. Brandon, really, thank you so much for the time today, and uh, enjoy the time on Friday here in town. Of course. Yep. We'll see you there soon. That is uh, that is Brandon and previously Chuck from the Canadian Brass and it's, that's a uh, that's a treat because uh, again I um, I'm hoping that you are familiar with them regardless of what your taste in music is they truly are one of the great Canadian musical exports ever they really are and um, yeah I mean the story with, with Chuck true story that the first time I saw them was forty years ago with my grandmother and you still remember that it was still uh you know and that affects it for sure that makes you a fan but yeah they are uh, in town friday if you are interested in seeing them burlingtonpac.ca if you're interested in getting a ticket or as i say if you don't want to get a ticket uh the live stream according to the website here is 15 bucks so you could uh, you could do that as well that evening the scott radley show weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 chml the Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.